wonder if we can uh, show our appreciation to Tyler and Emily. They've just done a great job, continue to do a great job with our young people. I know Emily is down working with children this morning, I believe, Tyler. But pass our appreciation. Let's show our appreciation to Tyler. I think uh, working with youth can sometimes be a thankless job, and it's a behind-the-scenes job. It takes a lot of energy and effort, and I've just uh, appreciated so much the, the, just the service that, that Tyler provides for us. And not just Tyler, we have volunteers as well, but certainly Tyler and Emily provide some tremendous leadership in this program. I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but, but Tyler is in the midst of finishing up his education, and this fall he suspended that so he could work full-time, to get enough money so they can finish his course this uh, spring. So just uh, the attitude is phenomenal. The, 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 the willingness to make sacrifices, personal sacrifice, has been inspiring for me, and I appreciate him so much. Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Last week we started a five-week series of messages focusing on the non-negotiables of the church. These are the principles, the the core values, the foundational understandings or beliefs that determine why we do church the way we do. So this is important stuff and it has huge implications for what we do here at the Rock Community Church. You'll remember the non-negotiables are a high view of God. That's what we looked at last week. This morning we're going to look at a high view of the scriptures. Next week it's a biblical view of man or humanity. And then a biblical view of the church. And then a biblical view of leadership. Our focus last week was on a high view of God. And I quoted A.W. Tozer from his book, Knowledge of the Holy. And this is what he wrote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's not only true of us individually, but it's true of us corporately as well, collectively. Our shared view of God, those common denominators in our understanding of God's person, plans, and purposes, shapes the way that we do church here at The Rock. It's unavoidable. And last week we learned about God, that we learned that we can learn about God through general revelation. Reading from Romans chapter 1. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. Creation provides a general revelation of God. We are without excuse. All we have to do is look around. God is knowable. But it's through special revelation that we come to know and understand him on a personal level, as he himself has revealed himself, primarily through the word. The word made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and then, finally, through the written word. The scriptures. God has revealed all that he intends to reveal about himself in the pages of this book. 
Last week I shared with you two broad categories in which God's revelations about himself can be divided. We had the communicable and the incommunicable attributes or of God, or sometimes referred to as the perfections of God. Communicable attributes are those qualities about God that he shares with humanity. Although in humanity, these attributes are obviously always displayed to a lesser degree because of our less than perfectness, but still we can see or catch glimpses of what God is like and who we are. Those are the communicable attributes. The incommunicable attributes are those that are exclusive to him alone. And in my mind, these are the ones that set him apart as the supreme, sovereign, one-of-a-kind God. In fact, in his own words, he says, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. Now, I didn't mention it last week, but allow me to raise just a caution here. We need to be careful that we don't approach this study of the attributes of God like we're entering an anatomy lab. All these attributes are on display in God all the time. So rather than carving him up into pieces... We need to see ourselves as, as kind of walking around him. And every once in a while, we'll pause and, and look at some specific expression or aspect of God's perfection. That's how we need to pr- approach a, a study of God. We can't lose sight of the whole when we're looking at specific aspects of God. And you can see the danger of that. If we emphasize the love of God against lose sight of the justice of God, then our view of God is off skew. But this is where a high view of God originates in the in the character, in in the attributes of God, understanding God as He has revealed Himself. That's where a high view of God originates. Understanding God as he has revealed himself in these scriptures. And that brings us to the non-negotiable that we want to turn our attention to this morning. A high view of scripture. So, what does that mean exactly? And then, how can a high view of God be developed and maintained? And so what? In other words, what difference will that make in my life and in the life of the Rock Community Church? But before we go there, I'd like to read an inspiring example of the kind of impact the scriptures can have in our lives. Remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart and my heart. And to that I say, wow. And here in Nehemiah chapter 8, we have an example of what that might look like. So let's 
Allow me to invite those who are able to stand with me for the reading of God's word and beginning in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and and Padiah, Mishael, Masajah, Hashem, Hashbanadath, Zechariah, Man, please don't name your kids like that. Like, what ridiculous names? Who would name somebody that? And Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Again, respect for the word. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josadab, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. In other words, they exposited the law. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so they understood the reading, made it clear. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For the day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still. For the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they had understood the words which had been made known to them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Father, your instruction to Joshua was crystal clear. 
Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Then your way will be prosperous and successful. As we study now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to have a high view of Scripture? Let me give you this. It means that we accept, understand, and value the Bible as as the special written revelation of God, and therefore, and therefore, as our final authority for faith and practice. That's a high view of God. And when I think of valuing the Scripture, Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13 come to mind. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on, a, on the lookout for, for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Although not the kingdom of heaven, perhaps we can view the scriptures as God's roadmap to the kingdom. My point is simply this. We ought to value the scriptures as much as that man and that merchant valued their discoveries. And in doing that, a high view of scripture means that we understand and value the Bible as a special written revelation of God and therefore as our final authority for faith and practice. Which leads us to our next question. How can you and I develop and maintain that high view of Scripture? First of all, by accepting their point of origin. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to that passage that Wayne referred to earlier in his reading. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Second Peter chapter 1, and then the last two verses of that chapter, verse 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You may want to underline that final phrase in verse 21. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That phrase describes how these prophecies of Scripture came into existence. Prophecy is just another word for the Word of God. 
Listen to the New International Version translation of these verses. Above all, you must understand. And so if Jesus was the one speaking here, he might have said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. So Peter is saying here, pay attention. This is really important. This is going to be on the final exam. You will want to highlight this point. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in human will. In other words, the writing of Scripture was never the result of human initiative. Does that wording in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 remind you of anything that we've studied recently? Keep your finger there and flip back to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So neither spiritual rebirth or the writing of Scripture are the result of human initiative. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The writing of Scripture was not the result of human initiative. This is a a spirit of God thing. The same word translated carried along is actually found not only here in verse 21, but in Acts chapter 27, verse 15. Listen as I read. And when the ship was caught in it, a storm, and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. The word's used again at the end of verse 17. They let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. They're at the mercy of the wind. And likewise, the writers of Scripture were at the mercy of the Spirit of God, driven along like a boat caught in a hurricane. Turn with me now to what one commentator refers to as the strongest statement in the Bible on itself, about itself. And that's found in First Timothy, or Second Timothy chapter 3. Again, a passage that Wayne had read for us earlier. Second Timothy chapter 3, and again at the end of the chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 14. Let me start there. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul in these verses is writing to a young pastor by the name of Timothy who's actually overseeing a church in the city of Ephesus. And what he's saying is, Timothy, keep on keeping on. And notice what in verse 14. You, however, continue, keep on keeping on, in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, 
and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Interesting. So keep on keeping on. Because of the influence these sacred writings have had in your life in the past. But now look at verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Keep on keeping on because of the influence scripture can have in your future ministry. And notice verse 16. It is all scripture. That seems pretty inclusive to me. All graphe is scripture. It's the Greek word that's translated scripture. And when these scriptures were written, it, that Greek word would have been used for any document. But when the New Testament writers used the word graphe, it was exclusively used for the scriptures or for those sacred writings. That's the only time they use that word. So all scripture is inspired by God. Inspired by God is an English word. It translates actually a single Greek word. Theopneustos. And so it's a compound word. Theo meaning God and panustos meaning breath. So putting them together, Paul was telling Timothy that all scripture was literally God breathed. And that's exactly why the ESV translation translates that phrase, all scripture is breathed out by God. In fact, the NIV says all scripture is God breathed. So note, the scriptures do not contain the word of God, nor do they become the word of God as we read them. They are, in fact, a special revelation, a special God-breathed, spirit-driven revelation of all that God wanted written about himself, his plans, and his purposes. That, my friends, is the foundation upon which a high view of God or a high view of the scriptures can be developed and maintained. For sure, it involves a a dual authorship. Humans were used in order to write the scripture. But God chose specific individuals who brought certain personalities, experiences, backgrounds, histories, and we could go on and on, to the table when they sat to write. And along with that, a WUI, not a DUI but a WDUI, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Those two realities ensured that what they wrote, right down to the very words they used, was precisely what God wanted to express about himself and his plans and purposes in writing. So theologically, this is referred to as the inspiration of scripture. We as a localized expression of the body of Christ are associated with a group of churches called the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada. The AGC consists of 
approximately 160 churches spread out all across Canada. It is an association rather than a denomination. And what that means is that each church within the association remains a self-governing local expression of the body of Christ. So what then unites us as an association? Well, basically two things. Our shared beliefs and convictions based on our understandings of what the scriptures teach. And we express that, in, or the AGC expresses that, or brings that together in a doctrinal statement that we all agree to. And the second thing that binds us together is a credentialing process where the AGC assumes the responsibility for the identification, examination, and ordination of all pastoral staff in the AGC churches across Canada. The national office for the AGC is in just down the road in Burlington, Ontario. And here's what the association, our association, publishes in its doctrinal statement concerning the scriptures. The Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is the complete word of God. As originally given, it is verbally inspired without error and entirely trustworthy. The Bible constitutes supreme authority in all matters of faith, teaching, and behavior. The Bible has Jesus Christ as its focus and fulfillment, and then includes some scripture references for support. Just allow me to be your tour guide this morning as we walk through this AGC doctrinal statement concerning the scriptures. First of all, the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is the complete word of God. I'd like to point out that word complete. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his unique, only begotten son, according to Hebrews chapter 12, chapter 1, verse 2. The word made flesh in John chapter 1, verse 14. The one who promised his disciples, as reported in John chapter 14, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So these apostles, they were uniquely equipped as a result of the time they were able to spend with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And secondly, with the gift of the Holy Spirit to co-author God's written revelation. Therefore, with the death of the apostles, God's written revelation was complete. The word, both the word made flesh and the written word, completed God's revelation in the sense that we need nothing more. We have everything that we need to live a God-honoring life. And so when people say things like, God told me, or expressions like that, that's not theologically correct. God only speaks to us through his word. There's no more special revelation. Certainly God can guide us through this, by the spirit through his word, and that does happen today. Let's continue the tour. As originally given, acknowledges that both copies and translations 
have been made of those original manuscripts. We do not have the originals in our possession. They're long gone. We don't have any copies of the original documents. And that's probably a good thing. We'd probably end up worshiping them or something. But we do have an unbelievable amount of evidence confirming that what we do have are reliable copies of those originals. The evidence is just astounding. In fact, it, it, I would even go to, so far as to say that it suggests that these scriptures have been supernaturally pre- preserved over the years. They are trustworthy. It is verbally inspired. Sometimes you'll hear the word plenary, which just means that the Holy Spirit ensured that even the right words were used to express what God wanted us to, to know. And then without error, in other words, it's inerrant. Think about it. God wrote the Bible. He breathed it out. And God himself, by his very nature, is prevented from being a liar, a deceiver, or misrepresenting or misleading us. He always tells the truth. Therefore, it only makes sense. The scriptures that he breathed out must be inerrant and and entirely trustworthy. Here again, I think the AGC is attempting to avoid being derailed by contemporary theological debates. Scripture inerrancy and infallibility have in recent years become hills on which theologians go to die. And that's fine, but what you and I need to know is that this book can be trustworthy. We can trust it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We do belong to an association of churches that promotes a high view of Scripture. We develop and maintain a high view of Scripture by accepting the point of origin, and secondly, by accepting their inherent value. Let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Not only is all Scripture inspired by God, but notice all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. The NIV reads, and useful. The Greek word used here is found only on three other occasions in our New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it's used twice. Well-known verses. For bodily discipline is of only little value or little profit, but godly godliness is profitable for all things. Titus chapter 3, verse 8 is the next time it's used. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for all men. All scripture is profitable, useful, beneficial. It will provide a good return on your investment of time, energies, and efforts. These scriptures are like those Amazon stocks. I was watching the news the other night, and 
Apparently, they've just released their last quarter earnings that went through the roof. And overnight, the Amazon shares went up $80 per share. That's a good investment for those that have shares, which unfortunately doesn't include me. But I do have a few copies of the scriptures in my library, so that's a good thing. The Apostle Paul goes on to elaborate on what the scriptures are profitable or useful for. And he gets really specific. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Four things came to the Apostle Paul's mind that says scripture is useful just immediately. The scriptures are useful for teaching God's truth, or in other words, teaching what is right. They are useful for rebuking us when we get it wrong. In other words, sin, or another way of saying it, how to get right. Or sorry, what is not right. And then they are useful for correcting wrong thinking, how to get it right. And then they are useful for training. And the word used training there is is the same words used when we're training small children. Training in righteousness, which means living God-honoring lives. How to stay right. So all scripture is useful for knowing what is right, what is not right, how to get it right, and how to stay right. As a new believer, I was exposed to an illustration of these concepts in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And trust me, it was almost 40 years ago, and it stuck in, in my mind. And maybe that means I'm a, a visual learner. I'm not sure, but here it is. I want to share it with you. So you'll see that learning or teaching shows us the right way. Rebuking shows us where we got off the path. Correcting shows us how to get back on the right path. And then training shows us how to stay on the path. We develop and maintain a high view of God, God's Word, by accepting their inherent value. And thirdly, by accepting their authority and sufficiency. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. Notice it's so that. That's a purpose statement. So Paul is getting ready to answer the question, so what? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Back to the NIV translation. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is really interesting, but not apparent in our English translation, is that the Apostle Paul uses the same word in two different forms in the Greek. And we translate it thoroughly equipped. But the first is an adjective, and then he uses it as a participle, immediately. And so you could say, so that he or she is equip-equipped or super-equipped to perform all kinds of good works that will benefit others and please God. That is not to suggest that somehow you and I can attain perfection. 
It just means that we're capable, proficient, able to meet the demands of doing some extraordinary things, good things, so that others might even step back and say, wow, they are unschooled, ordinary people, men and women, and be astonished. And then take note that you and I have spent time with Jesus in these God-breathed scriptures. Wouldn't that be amazing? Exciting stuff. Another inference of verse 17 is that these scriptures provide everything that we need. They are sufficient. We don't have to look elsewhere for every good work. The preacher wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 12, but beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless. The excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. So is chasing the latest, greatest, newest fad. Theologically speaking, this is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. What it means is that the Bible is all we need to equip us for life and faith and service. And yet, sadly, the North American church, evangelical church, chases success by looking everywhere but the Scriptures. As elders here at the Rock Community Church, we just finished a book by George Zimmick entitled Doing God's Business God's Way, a Biblical Theology of Ministry. And I'm delighted to be part serving with a group of men who are absolutely committed to a high view of Scripture. And they are determined to allow this book to dictate why we do church the way we do. Our activities, our priorities, our direction, etc. Once we accept Scripture as God breathed and recognize their inherent value, we need to place ourselves under them. The AGC doctrinal statement goes on to say, the Bible constitutes supreme authority in all matters of faith, teaching, and behavior. We place ourselves under the authority of the scriptures, not above it where we can critique it, not beside it where we can take it or leave it, depending on how convenient it might be or whether somebody can give us a, make us a better offer, but under it, to obey it, to live by it. Carl F. Henry, a leading theologian in the 20th century, wrote these words. Without an authoritative scripture, the church is powerless to overcome not only human unregeneracy, in other words, depravity, but also satanic deception. Where the church no longer lives by the word of God, it is left to its own devices and soon is overtaken by the temptations of Satan and the misery of sin and death. We develop and maintain a high view of Scripture by accepting their point of origin, their inherent value, and their sufficiency and authority. So what? 
It's really quite simple. Proximity or exposure equals influence. You know what I'm saying. Sunday morning is a great start. I said it was simple, but I didn't say it was easy. Remember the big question that parents were confronted with a a few years back? Is it quality time or quantity time that counts when we are raising children? Quality or quantity? And I think in the end, the answer was yes. The more time we spend in this word, the more time, the more of God's word spends in us. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Here's another simple illustration that again speaks to how the Word of God gets into us, how it can get into us. And it was shared with me in the early days of my Christian life, and I've never been able to forget it. And it's really quite simple, but with this I will close. So you can't get away from it, it's on your hand. Number one here, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Allow me to read the references. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Read Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. That's referring specifically to the book of Revelation, but can actually be applied to all of Scripture. Study Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. These are the Bereans. For they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They studied the scripture. Memorize Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young person... Well, I'll say it the way I memorized it because I, I get confused when I try reading. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to God's word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then the final one is meditation. By his delight, by his delight, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever it does prospers. When the individual that shared this illustration with me initially, he took the word of God and he said, okay, you're going to first of all hear the word of God, and that's your baby finger. And so as you can see, it's pretty hard to balance the word. He said, then you're going to read it, and then study it. You can almost balance it, memorize it, have a, but to really get a grip on it, you need to memorize God's Word. Do all five. And meditation is not something that you need to be frightened of. It just means take a thought that you heard or read this morning and you allow it to ruminate. The Greek word here is what we would use for chewing the cud, for a cow chewing its cud. So we just take a thought and allow it to roll around in your mind all week long. 
thinking, what does it mean? What does it say? What does it mean? And what does that mean to me? What, what are the implications and inferences of that thought? That's meditation. And that's how God's word gets into our lives. Let's pray together. Father, using the words of the psalmist, may his words express the cry of our hearts. Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Guide my steps by your word so I will not be overcome by evil. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, you are mine. I promise to obey your words. You are my refuge and my shield. Your word is my source of hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.